backroom politics. Hey, Siri. Text Justin Russell. What do you want to say? Alan is on. politics and it's tuesday and we're going to try this again problems this is one of the disadvantages of running a live radio show using technology this is backroom politics live from the nation's capital washington dc hopefully 
Admiral Ken Carradine can hear me. Admiral Ken, can you hear me? Good afternoon, Justin. How are you? Doing fine. Uh, also, you totally, we totally lost you just then, Justin. Okay, somebody's got to stop messing with the board today because this is getting crazy. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and start the intro again. Alan Moore's with us as well. There we go. So let's get started. We've got a lot to talk about, obviously. Uh, our, you know, news coming out of Washington is actually there's not just one big piece of news. We're going to start off today with uh, the North South Korea and the situation in the Korean Peninsula. And the victory lap that uh, President Donald Trump seems to be getting ready for. Uh, for those who do not know, uh, the final preparations are being made for the president to go to what now looks like is going to be Singapore, but still not confirmed. But that decision will be made in the next couple of days, where he will, in fact, meet with South Korean President um, Moon and uh, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. The, uh, the the big question going forward has been at the same time is you know a lot of praise going to the president getting this even onto the schedule is it well deserved I start off Evelyn with you with all of the rapid fire happenings coming out of the Korean Peninsula and all the praise coming from both sides both North and South Korea. Does it deserve all of glory for this one? Well, I've said before that um, one of the things about President Trump is is that he's not afraid to go into um, what has been heretofore thought of as as dangerous waters, and specifically around uh, the Korea thing. I you know I think it's safe to say if if you've listened to this show for more than five minutes, you know that I'm not a I'm not a big uh, fan of the president, but I've also said too that this problem has been festering for um, was, was festering for all of my Navy career. Uh, I did five exercises on the Korean Peninsula, all of them um, mostly uh, gaming the defense of the South from the North. But I think uh, really they were they were designed to stick a finger in the, whoever the ruling Kim uh, happened to be in that person's eye. Um, I, I think I think the jury's still out. Um, you know, I I think that uh, because of some of the machinations that are going on with the Iran deal, uh, Kim Jong Un, if he's you know even got a sliver of rationality, which I think he's got at least a sliver, is sitting back watching the U.S. saying, hey, you know, these guys made a deal with the Iranians and now they're getting ready to renege, uh, and I should give up my nuclear weapons. Why? And then there's the uh, and then there's the uh, the example of uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, uh, who gave up his nuclear ambitions and, and got killed for his efforts. So I, I think the jury's still out. Uh, I think, if anything, I think the one group that has probably brought some some real pressure on the uh, on the North Koreans has been the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese do not want a war on their continent at their doorstep. Uh, they also don't want the U.S. to have an expanded foothold bigger than what they already have. And a unification of the of the Koreas, uh, taking the U.S. on as an ally, would not be a good uh, a good thing for the Chinese. So, all that being said, 
I think the jury's still out. Um, I, I don't trust the North Koreans any further than I can throw them. Um, they, they've, 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 uh, they've signed deals before and backed out. And the one thing that they've always wanted was some, some face-to-face recognition from the president of the United States. And, um, and I think it appears that they're about to get it without any, uh, uh, without any guarantees from us. That they're going to do uh, guarantees from them. That they're going to do what we want them to do. I mean, one more, Ken brings up some good points here. I mean, this is not the first time that we've had high-level U.S. officials inside North Korea trying to negotiate all for it to be for not or to have them just lie straight to our face. I give you Madeleine Albright's trip uh, during the Clinton administration. I give you any time Bill Richardson has gone over as an envoy. Uh, We've, you know, we've seen... Several delegations go to North Korea and sit down and talk to the North Korean leadership, but we've been given lip service. Is there any reason why we should start trusting the North Koreans right now, and why are the South Koreans so trusting right now? So, so not a lot of reason yet to trust. Okay, this isn't even a in the in the famous words of of Ronald Reagan talking about the Russians, trust but verify. I think here it's don't trust because of the history. So insist on verifying, but be open to the possibility that this case is different. And it's not different. Um, uh, what, well, what, what's different is a couple of the things that, that Ken talked about. The role of the Chinese who have participated now more recently in some of the sanctions against North Korea, feeling like they are huge stakeholders in what happens next door to them. They don't want a war, uh, a nuclear war, or any other kind of war on the Korean Peninsula. Nuclear wars uh, have uh, pose dangers of not just nuclear clouds moving with the winds and 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 poisoning uh, people and crops, um, but creating refugees. Um, uh, and, and an enormous amount of economic damage nearby, all of which has uh, negative implications. Everyone knows that China is the sole prop under uh, North Korea, along with who knows what kinds of uh, illegal bad actors may be moving stuff uh, by ship into, into North Korea. But by and large, it's, it's China. China is stepping up in ways that we have not seen before. That's critically important. South Korea's president... South Korea's president is a new guy with a new view who has opened doors. The, 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 the good luck of the, uh, of the Olympics, uh, the, the Winter Olympics, uh, giving an opportunity to invite North Korea in for North Koreans to come, to participate, uh, a, a level of celebration, uh, a relative of uh, – I mean a sister of, of uh, uh, Kim – these these play into the the narrative into into what we've seen along with President Trump's actions. Now we've all been pretty critical of President Trump's uh, name calling and bullying and tough talking. Um, what we won't know for a while. Let's assume that there is a deal that comes out. The question will be, was it done in part because of President Trump or in spite of President Trump? 
because of these uh, the the other forces that are at play, um, I'm perfectly prepared to say that to, to give the president some credit. It's just that you can't give him all the credit. You can't take away the role of the Chinese, the role of the South Koreans, the role of sanctions, and conceivably the role of uh, damage done at the nuclear test site, which seems to be borne out by satellite photos, um, where not only was their major nuclear weapon test site demolished and and suffered huge cave-ins, triggered some earthquakes, but possibly the escape of of a, a nuclear cloud, if you will, that would again right. follow the winds. We don't know what all has, has occurred here, but it's not just same old, same old. We have to be vigilant, suspicious, um, insist on 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 verification. Um, but we're way, way, way premature in saying, oh, my God, what a miracle. Look what we've done. Let's start giving Nobel Prizes to several people, you know, a group. Maybe. Yeah. I'd love, I I'd love for that to occur. But we're, we're not there yet. I mean, at the same time, Alan, we have uh, President Moon calling out to the Nobel Committee saying that, oh, Donald Trump should get the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, is this as, uh, to me, this sounds as stupid as giving Barack Obama his Nobel Peace Prize. Not quite as stupid. In, in that, not quite in the stupid. case of Obama, he won for not being George W. Bush. He hadn't really done anything. Uh, in this case, <laughs> there's there's some significant progress that President Trump appears to have played a positive role in, it's still way premature. I would love for this thing to pan out. I, I, I truly would. I think it would be really good for, uh, for the region, for the world, um, for America. Um, but <laughs> there's a long way to go here. You don't just make a few statements that are diametrically opposed to what you were saying six months ago, I'm speaking now of President of of, of Leader Kim, um, uh, and 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 President Trump showing a little restraint for a change in these meetings that are extraordinary on their face and the role of the Chinese behind the scenes. This is all really good, important stuff. There's a lot of work still to be done. Uh, uh, details of an agreement. There's a lot of diplomacy that has to occur. A lot of argument back and forth. What does denuclearization mean? How would it be? Uh, enforced, how would it be verified, and what's in it for the North Koreans? Um, and and uh, there's, it's just way too soon. It's 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 uh, it's out there. It but here's happen, my question. But it's it's a long way away. Admiral Ken, here's my question: Is we have a situation where we have a known hostile player? who's been to this table before and just flat out lied to the global community and where, and the white house is willing to embrace it and say, ah, welcome to the new world order as opposed to the Iranian deal where you have a, uh, you have an angry player in the, in the Iranian government, but for all for all intents and purposes, they haven't completely blown through any violations of the joint agreement. 
Why is it that we are so quick to embrace North Korea, and yet the White House threatens to next week pull out of an agreement that everybody else in the region saying, please keep, with the exception of Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, I, I think there, you know, there's some humor that could be harvested by saying birds of a feather flock together with regard to lying and, and uh, keeping the word about, about deals they've made. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll save that humor for the, uh, the, the, uh, the nightly uh, talk shows. You know, quite frankly, it doesn't make any sense because for all of the reasons that, um, that the, the, the administration says they want to pull out of the deal with the Iranians, they should have a deal. I mean, if there's no deal – there's no visibility into no chance of getting any visibility into what they're doing. You know, granted, if they are trying to run a clandestine um, nuclear development, nuclear weapons development program, it's going to be that much harder for them to do if there's a deal in place. If you pull the deal out, not only are we not going to get the money back, too, we've given up any any visibility, any ability to have any visibility into what they're doing. On the other hand, you've got the North Koreans. Uh, and again, as I said a few moments ago, uh, they're watching this, you know, whether we want to admit it or not. And if we are uh, going to renege on them, I'm sure that there's probably some school of thought on their part thinking, well, what would keep them from doing it to us? Um, there is no rationality in what's going on here. I think it fits in with the helter-skelter format of foreign policy that we've seen out of this administration so far. It's just that maybe this time – we're going to roll the dice and um, we might get lucky. And that's, you know, it reminds me of something that, uh, that the, the chaplain of the Navy likes to, likes to say, hope is not a strategy. Alan Moore, you agree? Well, so uh, I, I pretty much agree. I think Ken said something really important. He made, he made a quick reference, uh, but that, that's an important uh, to, to we're not going to get the money back. To, the, to some of the reasons that Iran entered the deal in the first place. A, um, there, were, there were sanctions from many, many countries against Iran, which was crippling its economy and its ability to, uh, to provide for the needs uh, of, of its people, rich and poor. Um, and in its uh, restraint, constraints on its ability to sell oil. Secondly, the United States was holding on the order of about $50 billion of Iranian money that we took control of um, back in the 70s um, when they took our hostages. And it's their money, but we were holding on to it all of this time. And uh, we, we had that, – that, <laughs> that was a huge amount of money uh, for them – and they wanted it back, and they were prepared to make concessions, both to get their money back, to get their oil more uh, readily into world markets, and to, ha- and to not have these other economic sanctions. Those were the, the carrots for Iran in giving up, uh, for a period of time anyway, its uh, nuclear weapons ambitions. I was not a big fan of the of, of all the provisions of the deal. I thought we could have gotten a better deal. But but we made the deal. We gave them back their money. The European uh, the other world partners in this uh reduced the sanctions 
And now it, we can't undo that. Um, and we signed on to that. And now we're out there going solo, suggesting we might pull out of the deal. Well, as Ken says, we can't get the money back. So that piece of leverage is gone. If we pull out of the sanctions piece, then we do harm to you, to U.S. business interests who have come back in to Iran cautiously, carefully, and slowly, um, but I think in some cases effectively. And we can give up all of that ground uh, to the Europeans and other Asian companies, there, and, and we can just anger – our allies. It's not that the Iranians are immediately going to turn around and start uh, start up their nuclear weapon program again. That would be stupid on their part because they like having the ability to to uh, to sell oil in world markets um, and to have far fewer constraints uh, on 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 global trade. And that's not going to change because of the Europeans. So we but, but can Adam, say we're going to take we're going to take our ball and go home. And yeah, but Alan, everybody, they, the, the Europeans will say, we got our ball, let's play with our ball. Yeah, but Alan, it, it, does that not give the indication that the U.S. is losing as the true leader of, you know, I mean, let alone the true leader of the free world, but, you know, the true global leader in anything from NATO to uh, any other uh, agreement we may have. We've already threatened to pull yeah. out of all, all kinds of other agreements. Except some it, bad it definitely, it definitely undercuts our credibility as a reliable partner. Now, this is the point that 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 you were making uh, in Ken too about about the North Koreans. Would they want to do a deal with with a country that that may turn around and renege on a deal? Um, it depends on the deal. It depends on what's in it. The, the, the Iranians were unique in that we had this $50, 50 billion that they wanted, um, and they had a lot of oil that they wanted to sell. Um, I'm not sure that we have something as valuable to the North Koreans that, that we could give them that it would make it worth their while to take the risk of cutting a deal with us if they thought uh, there was great risk. I mean, this is this is a subject of of intense focus inside this administration, among think tanks, among other governments. Um, French President Macron was was trying to make this point in his visit. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel was trying to make those same points with the president. He He's kind of stuck on the notion that he campaigned on, which was this was the worst deal in the history of the world. It wasn't the worst deal in the history of the world. It might have been a better deal. It wasn't. It's the deal that we made, and 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 in the history of our country, we make bad deals sometimes, or 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 so, shall we say suboptimal deals, uh, not just horrible giveaway deals that we have some duty to live up to. Because if we start walking away from deals from one administration to the next, it becomes virtually impossible to make uh, a deal as a reliable partner. And, and that's, that's what's at stake here. What's, what's really interesting is what, what advice the president might be getting right. these days from, from, uh, from, from General Mattis, from new Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, um, uh, for that matter, from, from John Bolton. He, John Bolton was a huge critic of the Iran deal and has suggested, yeah, we could, we, 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 we could, we, we could walk from it. 
we could walk from it. It's not going to change that much other than give the president another opportunity to thump his chest and say, well, there's another campaign promise I met, but there will be damage uh, to, a, to American interests and, and, uh, and conceivably our ability to get along with our right. allies and, and with, right. with other countries with whom we have differences. Right. Admiral Ken, uh, does this put does the possibility of a deal with North Korea combined with the added pressure that we're getting from our Israeli partners in Benjamin Netanyahu? I mean, that P.T. Barnum stunt he pulled today was pretty much for an audience of one, that one being Donald Trump. Can does this put more pressure on Secretary Mattis and America's uh, military as far as not only do we have to maintain a readiness posture for uh, a possible situation that could have been de-escalated in the Middle East, but now we don't even know what the situation could look like in six weeks on the Korean Peninsula. Um, I, I don't think it. I don't think it causes the um, the administration any. Or the DOD any 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 more churn than than uh, normal. Um, I, I think you know the neat thing about the DOD it's not an either uh, or uh, proposition. Even though we've had a number of, of uh, significant budget cuts, you know maintaining the readiness level on multiple fronts is just just it's just the way of life. So I don't think that's the issue. Um, I, you know, I, you know, I think the one question that you haven't asked is, you know, what do you think the president's going to do with the Iran deal long term? Um, uh, so I'll ask you, I'll ask myself that question for you. Um, Donald Trump, <laughs> Donald Trump, has, uh, has, uh, without fail, tried to meet every one of his campaign promises so far. I mean, uh, I mean, he's still. You know, making noise like he's building that 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 wall when we know that's not the case. Um, you know, he he's you know he he's he's walked away from from everything he he's he's uh, said he was going to do uh, that one would think would be counted a good sense. But um, so I I think he's going to tear up the Iran deal in in uh, in due course, and uh, and then we'll get to see what the North Koreans are going to do with regard to. Um, uh, changing their their tune uh, and coming back and or trying to join the uh, the community of nations. Alan Moore, does, does the possibility that a, a pulled back Iran deal give Donald Trump the ability to go back and just do almost like a shell game, rearrange the shells and say, "Up, oh, new new Iran deal. Look at that. I'm a genius." Well, he's got a much better chance of renegotiating aspects of the of the of the global relationship with Iran if he stays in the deal rather than leaving the deal. He doesn't necessarily see it that way, um, but the, the, the irony of all of this is, as Ken says, he he is so intent on um, being able to check off things that that he said he was going to do because there's some things that he's clearly not able to do. He did not and will not be able to get rid of Obamacare. He will not be able to build a wall that Mexico will pay for, you know, the two sort of highest profile issues. So this is one that he just wants to check 
the marks off. He, it would be fascinating to hear what he really thinks is even in the Iran deal, the worst deal, the, the one he characterizes the worst deal U.S. ever made, because there's just no way that that uh, almost no way that he's going to know very much about it. He wants to be able to check that off. It's not. It, it, you know, we don't know what all the downsides of it are. It's not going to blow up the world. It's not that the that Iran, is, as I said before, is going to suddenly immediately start working on its weapons again. It wants the other parts of the deal. The, it wants the foreign investment. It wants uh, ability to sell its oil and so on. It doesn't need America for those. America needs this deal. I mean, ironically, flawed as the deal was, we need this deal – just as Iran does, we walk away, and then it's Iran and all the other countries. It, it, it's it's yeah. uh, and and there's nothing there for us other than checking the box. Well, I said I was going to do it, and I did it. Good for me. Well, yeah. And joining us on the line right now for the Democratic perspective, he is uh, Democratic political operative, former Joe Biden political operative. He is a man we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Dan, you got thirty seconds for the Democratic response on North Korea and the Iran deal. Well, as soon as I heard Alan uh, ask for comments from the dear leader, I, ha- I knew I had to call in. Um, so, <laughs> no, so that said, the, the, the Iran deal and, uh, and, and both Ken and Alan's points are correct. Uh, the Iran deal and the Korea uh, negotiations are not separate issues. Uh, the the word of the country is at stake, and if uh, President Trump chooses to renege on the Iran deal, which he claims is the worst deal ever, um, then why should the North Koreans come to the table, knowing that uh, the next person to occupy the White House could very well just say, "Yeah, no, that was the worst deal ever. We're back at we're we're, we're not doing that either." So there, there, there is no upside to it. I'm not certain it's really necessary to say there's a Democrat or Republican side. This is on the side of the word of the United States versus not the word of the United States. And thus far, everyone has maintained that, that uh, Iran has, is actually following through with the deal, with the exception of uh, Bibi Netanyahu's uh, presentation which uh, Netanyahu is not exactly an honest broker in all of this. So it, it's it, it's unfortunate, and the stakes are much, much higher than American partisan politics. So that said, if the president does uh, get into the North Korea deal and does, does manage to get signed on the dotted line an actual peace treaty uh, that ends the Korean War, yeah. The Nobel Peace Prize of all things. All right. I mean, it wouldn't be my favorite thing in the world to see happen, but I would have to say it might be deserving. Hey, uh, uh, Dan Lipner, the one question I have for you is: we let's say we do pull out of the Iranian deal, and as Alan suggested, uh, the Iranians go, "Okay, screw you. We don't need you. We'll deal with everybody else." Does this? into almost a shift, almost a a dynamic power shift from focal point on the U.S. to almost a trifecta in Theresa May, uh, Angela Merkel, and uh, French President um, Macron? I mean, the short answer is yes, 
for everyone else. Since if the U.S. reinstates sanctions unilaterally, uh, I think we're losing phone quality on Dan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alan Morley posed a question to you. I, I mean, are we in fact possibly at the precipice of a dynamic shift power from Washington to almost a EU-based hub of power between Merkel, Macron, and May? You know, I don't know that we're at the precipice because that suggests we're at the same height where we were before and we're about to fall over it. We, we've been climbing down this hill now for, for the last year, um, uh, year and a half, um, and, and giving up in various ways uh, some of the leadership that, uh, that we previously had. Um, it, 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 and it's not that the, we give it up, but it's not that the others are necessarily grabbing it or wanting it. You know, at one point it was, gee, Angela Merkel, the new, the new uh, head of the West, um, uh, at Western world, and then suddenly she's got an, uh, enormous problems uh, uh, at, at home. So it's, it's, more, it's more a vacuum where, they're, where they rise a bit but but uh that that vacuum shouldn't exist. I wanted to say one thing about the Israelis because on the one hand I, I saw some of that that <laughs> that show um uh I I had to laugh because the, the, the key, I had to laugh at the key message which was Iran Iran lied. That that's a, that seems like the, the, the right words for the, the president's attention span. And then some visuals. But Hey, let's give kudos still again to the intelligence community of Israel, which somehow got its hands on an enormous amount of material. Having said that, it's 15-year-old material, and I, for one, I'm not saying I'm smarter than, than the average guy. I, for one, was not surprised that the Iranians actually were trying to develop a nuclear weapon. The whole point of the presentation was we caught them. They said it was for peaceful purposes, but guess what? They were trying to develop a nuke, a weapon. Oh my God, who knew? I think we all knew. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't. It not. It's not helpful to have to have uh, evidence of, of of their lies. It's just that. No one thought they were being truthful before. We've got more evidence now that they weren't being. So uh, I, I think that you know that that the president can look at that, and nod, and say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." See, right? And then he'll be reminded but, that that's Adam, what he has said before. That's what we've all thought. Alan, let me go to Alan O'Ken real quick because to me this seems like uh, a very awkward situation for Washington, where the world is still going to look at us as the big linebacker or the, or the quarterback of, of global security, and that puts pressure on the Pentagon. But can we effectively maintain our strength militarily without the strength politically of the White House being in the lead? Well... That's a real interesting question. I mean, it's kind of like, a, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? So, you know, the White House uh, drives um, the, the national, the, the international strategy. 
and the, the military, you know, planners, we, we, we basically take that strategy and we use that to develop our, our planning as to what we'll do in, in one particular situation or another. So absent that strategy, you know, these guys and gals do the best that they can uh, to, to, to lean forward and, and try and do the, the what if. Um, but you can only do that up to a point. So the comments that I made before about the fact that you know we we the U.S. is constantly looking at you know at more than just one one area of the world. That's why we've got COCOMs. Um, we're, it's constantly looking at more than one area of the world, and it's, and it's ready to do what it needs to do. But just like in any other uh, organization, there's some um, level of resource prioritization that's got to take place. And that prioritization is usually driven by the national defense strategy. So when, when, when we look at the U.S. pulling back, if you will, uh, adopting this America first uh, policy and whatever that particularly means to whoever's saying it, uh, we're not going to be in, in, uh, interventionists. You know, we're not going to be doing you know, foreign military ventures over here or over there uh, without – clearly understanding there might be a reason that we've got a force presence um, in the South China Sea. There might be a reason that we're, you know, we've got ships in and around the Mediterranean at at one, any one given uh, point in time. And uh, without understanding what the second and third order effects are of pulling those forces back unilaterally, uh, absent a really uh, a sound strategy, yeah, you know, it, it could it could turn into a messy situation. Uh, I don't think we're there yet uh, because of guys like Jim Mattis. Uh, I like to think that we're not going to get there because of guys like Jim Mattis. But he's the Secretary of Defense. He takes orders like the rest of the folks in the Pentagon does or do. Dan Lipner, I mean, it, it almost sounds like we're on the verge of a almost, you know, mediocre isolationist policy or a a you know what kind of be america first but what kind of also be in the area if you need us are we walking a very delicate tightrope by taking this pseudo isolationist protocol in diplomatic affairs i mean it's a stupid isolationist approach the the amount of other interests that are in play uh i mean let's not make a mistake about all this. The what the biggest interest at play for everything else is trade. So the the isolationist approach that suddenly begins to affect US commercial interests happens across the board. And if the rest of the world decides to just circumvent the United States, which means the US banks, which is how we tend to get our fingers into making these sanctions work. Okay, great. So the European banks and Russian banks suddenly get to uh, to 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 raise their profile, and U.S. banks fall to the wayside. And worse yet, possibly some of those same places decide to pull out of the United States in order to maintain these other interests in the world. Um, that's a bit more difficult since we are still the largest marketplace, but. If you take that isolationist turn and you begin to affect people's wallet, then, yeah, bad things begin to happen. And the other side of that is there's also the, the, the idea of commercial diplomacy, that 
once you actually do get your fingers in with the economic interests of a country and the commercial interests of the country, yeah, making peace is a whole lot easier. But, you know, those are pesky little details that this administration and this, uh, and, uh, this president don't seem to pay attention to. Right. Well, we're going to let that be the last one for the segment. Uh, obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on this one. Uh, but I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the correspondence dinner and the president's rally that happened, ironically, at the exact same time this Saturday, this past Saturday. But we're going to talk about that and the, the politics of the press. This is Backroom Politics Live from Washington, D.C. on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Please stay with us. Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Admiral Ken Cardine, the Honorable Alan Moore, and Dan Lipner, Esquire. Uh, 
want to talk a little bit about uh, what happened this weekend regarding the correspondence dinner. It was uh, it is what they call nerd prom, geek ball, uh, wonk, uh, Oscars for wonks, however you want to call it. But the annual White House Correspondence Association dinner was held at the Washington Hilton in Northwest D.C. What is usually a kind of a celebrity, politico, journalist kind of intermingling and for many decades now, a very tier one event in the nation's capital. This is the second year in a row that President Trump has refused to attend the dinner. This year, unlike last year, he did send most of his communication staff, including comms director, uh, um, good grief, Huckabee Sanders. I'm having one of those senior Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it was not without. Uh, it was not without uh, very much uh, some conflict. The big conflict came from the comedian Michelle Wolf, who ripped into uh, the administration and a lot of attendees there. Uh, in what some had called uncomfortable, some called inappropriate, and some said uh, standard standard fare for the Correspondence Center. At the same time, the president, while since he was not attending said Correspondence Center, held a rally out in Michigan, out in uh, Washington Township, Michigan, uh, which seems to be a happy place for the president, where he won bigly in that county, um, threw out some major, major uh, spitballs from the uh, dais there at his rally. And we're going to talk about that, but let's go back to the Washington Correspondence Dinner. Uh, but first, we've got a question for the 908 area code. 908, you're on with Backroom Politics. It's just your favorite New Yorker, Sharmila. Sharmila. Oh, hey. Hey, Sharmila's here. Good, because I can start off with you. Sharmila, we are uh, talking about the Correspondence Dinner. Uh, Michelle Wolf made some pretty serious digs, even causing the comm staff from the White House to walk out of the dinner completely. Uh, was Michelle Wolf um, was Michelle Wolf just being a comedian that just bombed, or was her comments hurtful? Well, for, first of all, I don't think the Trump administration is especially well known for their thick skin, but um, Fair enough. I do think her comments... <laughs> were a little over the top. I think, you know, the familiar quote I've read about the correspondence dinner, uh, and I'm still waiting for my invite, by the way, is uh, that, you know, the jokes should singe but not burn. And I think Michelle Wolf burned in a much more sort of personal uh, and a bit more vicious way than was, was, was expected by the crowd. I think last year, Hassan Minaj kept it more high level. He, um, he aimed his jokes at the president and at sort of the policies of the administration without going after staffers in particular, whereas it seems like Michelle, or Michelle Wolf really wanted to use her speech to hold certain staffers accountable for the role they're playing in the administration, which obviously didn't sit well with some people, but seemed to be fair game to others. I think that, you know, the common refrain we've heard is that how are we holding a comedian to a higher standard than the president of the United States? We have a president who is constantly saying, you know, saying in press conferences, tweeting, uh, talking in rallies, making up 
nicknames for people, you know, making up outrageous lies about people and saying them on a daily basis. And yet somehow everyone's in a huff about this comedian who said a few mean things for two hours. So there does seem a disconnect there, but I think that overall I can, I can see both sides of the argument that, you know, her, her, uh, her remarks seem to be a little uh, pointed and kind of out of the spirit of the dinner and that, you know, it's not a, and the other side of the argument, which is that it's not really a big deal. Dan Lipner, do you agree with uh, Sharmila? So I have a, so I'm going to lay off the comedians and the comedians have their own art and they do their thing. However, the, the actual white house press corps and the correspondence dinner, what is the upside to them on, on having this kind of event other than to be self-congratulatory and seem that much more out of touch and hated by everyone else. Occasionally there's a good speech by the president if he attends, and this includes uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or George W. Bush, or I mean, I mean Laura Bush gave a speech at the correspondence d- dinner that had a funny line about going out with a former uh, – Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and her saying that uh, Senator Day O'Connor's Secret Service code name was now Dollar Bill after the announcement together. That was funny. Um, however, this kind of controversy at the end, the where the the work they do is so serious, but most people get lost in the weeds and the, lost in the weeds on these on these frivolous details that are self-created uh, by the white by the Washington and White House press corps uh, to congratulate themselves when their work is pretty serious and I don't blame them for taking a night off but the not seeing the after effects that that cost them credibility um, is challenging that said the president's response and the White House having the gall to to, to take umbrage about the ugly things that were said, um, as long as they take umbrage with the ugly things that 45 says, okay, then, then, then I'll accept that as credible. But until then, they need, they need to grow a pair and, uh, and m- maybe learn how to deal with the press like adults and not just call names. Yeah, but Dan, it's it's Michelle Wolf, the comedian who gave the monolo- that gave her a monologue or gave her stand-up routine or however you want to call it, that's drawn the ire of not only uh, many in the Republican Party and at the White House and in the administration, but even some in the media corps saying, well, that might have been a little much. Uh, I mean, mean, at what point do we say, you know, all right, well, if you're going to dish it out, you got to be able to take it, or is that even fair? I mean, going all the way back to Bill Clinton when Don Imus was making jokes with where people in the White House and people outside of the White House said, you know, that was inappropriate, especially with the first lady in attendance. Okay, that stuff happened. And, you know, I wasn't a particular fan of it. But, again, it goes forward and you have to deal with it. But at a certain point, actually acknowledging that the level of debate has turned entirely into this kind of garbage, maybe reexamining the invite, uh, who is invited to the correspondence dinner, and I'm not certain how sought after the, the invite is, 
um, and what the outcome is to the White House press and the Washington press is they should be attentive to. I, I mean, Alan Moore, the correspondence dinner has always been uh, kind of uh, mentioned as a celebration of the First Amendment. Does it seem ironic that they're talking about censoring a comedian for her comments about the administration and people working in the administration and doing it at a celebration of the First Amendment? Well, there, there, there's a little bit of irony here, but I don't think that's the, the, the main story. I've enjoyed listening to, to, to Sharmila and, and Dan at the end sort of turn into pretzels trying to turn this back around on this administration. Um, Michelle uh, Wolf uh, did something that's very unusual today, uh, and, and that is she kind of united Washington because – I can find almost no one who thought that that was a a good show, a funny show, an appropriate show. There were some funny jokes along the way, but some of it was ugly and nasty. To do a roast, which is kind of what's going on here, you need to show balance, and you need, you need frankly, the president to be present so there's a counter voice. And uh, Dan, Dan mentioned the Don Imus thing. A lot of people believe that, that Seth Meyers about seven years ago, unrelenting, nasty attack on Donald Trump contributed to his decision to seek the presidency. Thanks, Seth Meyers. Um, this thing, I don't blame the comedian. I blame the people who booked her and didn't pay any attention to her kind of humor, which is perfectly fine for a comedy club or Netflix. Oh, my God, her Twitter followers have jumped tenfold. Uh, Netflix is going to make some real money. But it was just not appropriate. It wouldn't have been appropriate if Trump had been there. But with no counterbalance, my prediction is we're done with comedians at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It's increasingly embarrassing well, listen to what all of the the, the liberal uh, journalists are saying. Like, oh my God, how could we possibly have given this president this kind of victory um, at 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 this particular event? We got we got we got journalists dying in the field, including just this week. We've got others who are in prison. The the whole note idea here of a of, of these press celebrations there's two of them the white house correspondents and the radio and tv correspondents i used to go to some of these events they were fun the president would be there there would be some some lighthearted humor some singeing not burning put downs um and and then it started to turn uglier and uglier i'm surprised i mean dan mentioned the the don imus deal with with Bill Clinton and he took after Peter Jennings and it was an embarrassment. He said it was one of the worst things he'd ever done and it affected his career in a negative way. I'm kind of surprised that, that, that it continued, but they, they went for some softer comedians, but if you don't have the president there um, uh, to, to help kind of temper it and then respond. Uh, and I don't blame, this, I don't blame the president for not wanting to get into the middle of that. You will never see this president at one of these 
if there's a comedian. Um, uh, hey, if, if, if you saw the president at the um, roast on MTV, it, you, know, you can't really claim the high ground You know, it, it's just it, he. I, I don't. I don't think the president's response was particularly helpful. But who would have guessed that there would be somebody who could make Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, and Kellyanne Conway sympathetic figures? This person did it, and it was <laughs> irony of ironies at this pre- <laughs> this press celebration. I, I think it was I think it was disastrous for uh, for the press. Um, and uh, the only per- the only winner is the comedian herself, who who's now got a, a big following and can't be blamed for uh, really for doing her thing the way she does it. She had one great line. She said, "I'm I'm ten years too young to to have this gig." And 22 years old to 20 years too old for Judge Roy Moore. Yeah, Alan, the 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 the, the thing that gets me is that I mean I I look at the at the at the approach that Dave Chappelle has taken, and, and, and Dave Chappelle, say what you will about him, has been fairly even as far as dealing with a Trump presidency. Um, but Dave Chappelle's response to Michelle Wolf the other night, uh, he pretty much praised her saying, look, you don't go to a, you don't, you don't go to a celebration of the first amendment and start censoring somebody and saying, well, what they said, what, what she did is she spoke her truth. Did she bomb? Possibly. That's, that's up to it. But to say that, you know, now the White House Correspondents Association, now, as you had pointed out, I've talked to a couple of people today that said that they're talking about doing away with the comedian, which I said, that's that's idiotic. If that's the case, then every anti-First Amendment or every controlled message person out there wins. Why? Just why? Well, hey, so so why why does this have to be a thing of extremes? Okay, so I agree with with with, with Dan and with Shamla and with Alan that that and and you, Justin, um, yeah, the the White House Correspondents Dinner uh, absent a comedian would be a dumb thing. The White House Correspondents Dinner absent the President of the United States. Uh, making a counter narrative in a in a comedic way is also a mistake. You know, just last week when we were talking about Congressman Al and the passing and their passing and the and the passing of Barbara Bush, we all basically said that the one thing that 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 those two people brought to the political uh, blogosphere and and and, and discussion uh, space was civility. And I think the one thing that was missing from Michelle Wolf's comments was any any ounce of civility. Going after uh, somebody on their personal appearance is not the same thing as talking about what they've done with regard to policy and how idiotic it might be. Absolutely agree. So all that was – all that was was just yet another demonstration of the fact – that we have lost the civility that allows us to laugh at ourselves, laugh at the silly things that that uh, that we might do, uh, and and, uh, and 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 be able to realize that when you're pointing a finger at somebody, there's three more fingers pointing back at you. That's all that that the White House Correspondents Dinner was. I, I like Margaret Tlaib. I think I, I enjoy watching her work and reading her work. Smart, smart woman. 
but I think she might have gotten snookered on this one a little bit by booking somebody like Michelle Wolf. Uh, it, it wasn't so much that Michelle Wolf should have censored. But, she, she, it's not so but, much that she should have censored. It's not so much that she should have censored uh, what what she said because that is the kind of comedy that she delivers. Uh, what guys? Pick guys, another, hold on, hold on, hold on. Pick another comedian. Were there any Were there any funny speeches from anyone else? So one of the things that I've always liked about the correspondence dinner and the the Al Smith dinner in New York is actually getting a chance to see people who are not traditionally funny be funny. And, I mean, I actually remember the lines. I mean, the Laura Bush line talking about Sandra Day O'Connor, that was a funny line because you would actually see her as that. The, the, from the Al Smith dinner, George W. Bush, Bush's line uh, when, uh, during the campaign with Al Gore, him saying, you know, me and Al Gore have a lot of things in common. Al Gore wrote a book. I read a book. Um, the, even Donald Trump during the Al Smith dinner said, and proof of the, the biased media, the, uh, you know, Michelle Obama gives a speech and is widely praised, and Melania gives the exact same speech and, <laughs> and has gone after for it. I mean, those are funny bits. And there are others, but when the when when the talent upstages everything else, that's when something else changes. And the we've taken what you know this lighthearted event and has taken a huge turn for nothing but serious because it focuses now on the ugly, uh, which is unfortunate. Yeah, you're right. You know, well, let's talk about a little bit about the. Uh, I do want to talk about the uh, president's. Rally that he had encountered that was his counterbalance uh, to the uh, correspondence dinner. Uh, the the rally which he had in a large area outside of Washington Township, Michigan. Uh, many comments were made. Uh, he took on everything from the border issue to the making claims like and I quote: "The Democrats don't care about our military. They don't. They don't care about our borders or crime." Unquote. Um, Lost you Can't hear a word So I think the question is uh, The the president's comments At the Michigan rally Do you want to follow up with a Your take on uh, the president's response are you asking me, Dan? I can't Alan, hear anything I'm now again. You so we don't have oh. dead air. So, well, then I heard you. Now we got music. Yeah.
Hi, guys. It's Audrey. We're back. Sorry about those technical difficulties. Can everybody hear me? I hear you. I think where we left off was talking about the president's reaction to the correspondence center. Uh, does anyone want to chime in on that? I mean, sure. I'll, I'll say a word or two. Um, it, you know, it was <laughs> he was giving a rally and I, I, I'm not sure of the timing. I think that, that he, you know, he had a set speech. He went on for about his normal hour, his normal riff where he's saying outrageous things and, non-factual things and provocative things and crowd-pleasing things. Um, uh, This is another case with regard to his reaction to the, uh, to the correspondence dinner and the, and the entertainment there where less is more. If if he would just say, I thought it was tasteless um, and inappropriate and an embarrassment to, to the, to the media, um, he would have he would have won even more. I mean, it it was a victory for him, but he can't leave well enough alone and and recognize that uh, when everybody else is criticizing somebody who has tried to humiliate him and some of his people, let them do it. Don't you do it yourself? Yeah. Well, uh, we're gonna. We're going to let that be the last word real quick. We're going to, I know we've kind of had a little bit of a technical problem. It looks like we're back in play. Uh, let, me, let, but, let me add one, one little thing, Justin, if I could, yeah. it, it, with regard in general to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It used to be these events were not televised. And then sometimes there would be video that would show up after the fact. Now I think three different uh, outlets were showing it live. That's not in this particular case, in my humble opinion, a recipe for uh, f- for success. You know, you have the gridiron dinner, you have the alfalfa dinner. They're closed events. We hear about the jokes later, but you don't have cameras on the people who are being joked about. It, it's uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, Rosenstein w- was there uh, the other night, but he apparently got up and left before the uh, the. The, the, the Michelle Wolf spoke. The speculation being, he didn't want cameras on him if there were jokes made about him right. uh, or any anything else. So you know, the whole question: if they're going to have, they really got to be careful who they bring in, and they really, I think, need to think about whether televising is a good idea or whether it can come back and backfire on you. Well, well, I'm sure we're going to be talking. I'm sure we're going to be bringing that up at. Uh, the next uh, Correspondents Association meeting, and I'm sure it'll be talking fodder around the press club this week. So that being the case, hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we, we, we need to talk about Russia and the Mueller investigation and apparently uh, the president's personal doctor got uh, raided, but not by the government. This is Backroom Politics Live from Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here live from the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show, although not today with technical issues, but it's still the best political content you don't know about. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to shift a little bit because it can't be a week of blog of uh, Backroom Politics without talking about uh, all kinds of information going on regarding the Russian investigation and the special counsel's investigation into uh, into just about everything now. But uh, late last night, the New York Times reported that there are ex- there are roughly about 50 or so plus questions that uh, the Mueller investigative team has, in fact, put towards the president as answers that need to be addressed, whether in person or in writing or however. These are some very interesting questions that go back as far as uh, early 2016, but as late as just uh, March. The bottom line here is that these are some pretty uh, pretty serious questions that are being posed by the special counsel and could be a little bit of heartburn for the folks in the administration. Um, I go to you, Alan Moore, when we – when we look at those questions, and I don't know if you've seen the list that was released by the New York Times, um, it, it almost strikes me that they're trying to get, you know, these are people that are not asking questions that they may not already have answers to, but want to get the president's perspective or defense or justification for. Uh, is, does this pose a problem for the White House or? Is this just routine and they shouldn't lose sleep over it? Well, my, my reading of, of, of the questions is that there's nothing there that leapt out at me that was a big surprise. It would struck me as the kind of subject matter that they would want to, uh, to talk to the president about. Um, the, the origins of the of the stuff that was uh, was leaked is is pretty interesting. The president has expressed outrage at who the leakers were and trying to suggest that maybe it was that it was the the, the Mueller folks. Um, there are two problems with that. One, we have a long history of Mueller's keeping a very tight lip, tight shop. They just aren't aren't leakers. The second, much more bigger uh, aspect of this though is that 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 the origin of the list grew out of a, a face-to-face meeting with Mueller people and the president's lawyers where they went through, the Mueller people went through verbally, no paper exchanged, verbally all the things that they wanted to ask the president about. Some were in the form of questions, but some of it was more subject matter. We would want to ask him about this. We would want him to ask about that, this, that. And the, and the Trump people uh, wrote, wrote down notes and put together the list. A piece of paper, the 48 or 49 points, some questions, some subjects. That's <laughs> it, 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 it's not written the way that that uh, an investigative group would, would 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 write it. Also, whenever you're doing questioning, you start with a couple of questions and then you see what the answers are and you move in different directions. So the the, the bottom line is the leak had to come out of uh, the, the, the Trump world because they're the only ones 
they the, they're the ones who created the paper and uh, the paper that was uh, shared with the New York Times. Who All the Times said was that the, it did not come from the legal team. But as we know from, from Jim Comey, <laughs> you hand something to a friend and ask them to leak it, and it is leaked. Um, and uh, it, it, what the benefit of all of this, I, I don't see. Uh, it, it, it also could have been some rogue person who just decided this was interesting. The, it, it, was, it was nothing, though, about the, the subject matter um, particularly surprised me. Um, so I go, we'll see what I happens. Go to I want to go to Sharmila and and get your legal perspective on this. Uh, Sharmila, these questions that were uh, acquired by the New York Times overnight, uh, to me, these look like rabbit hole questions. You know, let's take the president down this rabbit hole, see how far he'll go. Are, are I mean, are they literally getting these? preparatory questions ready to go and they'll show up and appear in person or even in writing. Are these going to be uh, trigger questions to see where the president goes? Well, look, the Mueller team is not dumb. They have obviously observed how President Trump reacts to being questioned in interviews and debates and, you know, his various forms of communicating. And they know, or they have an inkling of how to get the information that they want from him. And so, if they're asking him these open-ended questions, then yes, I have a suspicion that they want him to be able to answer open-endedly and kind of see where his stream of thought takes him. You know, he has a tendency to offer sort of rambling, disjointed answers that, you know, sometimes that usually don't, don't, uh, don't direct back to the exact question, don't directly answer the question at hand, but often can still provide information and so i think but isn't that, for them isn't that where the president isn't that where the president gets himself into trouble yeah but that's his own fault i mean any ask any law enforcement official right like they're going to interrogate you to try to get the information they want if you have enough self-discipline not to give it to them that's on you that's not on them their job is to get information from you i mean and they're Apple not doing it you know, through illegal or shady means, right? These questions are not public. The president knows what's coming. He knows the general gist of what they're interested in. And he, he is more than capable of preparing and rehearsing with his lawyers and coming up with, you know, reasonable talking points. Yet he doesn't do any of those things. And that's not, that isn't prosecutor's fault, right? And the, the fact remains that you see that the president often when confronted with a direct question, will lie, right? He will often deny he said things or deny, you know, doing things that he's on video saying or doing. So I think they've made a educated calculation that in order to get the information they want from him, perhaps not in the order they anticipate, open-ended questions are the way to go. Admiral Ken, and that's the a... mandate. Right. Admiral Ken, we have a president that basically has the right to remain silent, but apparently does not have the capacity to do so. Is there a possibility that he's going to defy his entire legal team and say, I want to sit down, I want my day in front of Mueller, and I'm going to put him in his place? I'm that good? And wouldn't that be must-see TV? I mean, holy <laughs> cow. <laughs> just like 
just like the other morning on Fox News, where he basically admitted that um, Michael Cohen uh, was representing him with the crazy Stormy Daniels uh, stuff, unquote. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I I think that um, you know, in, in looking over, I, I'm not a lawyer. You know, I'm just listening to people like Sharmila and and, uh, and other talking heads um, on the uh, on the TV. Not that Sharmila's a talking head. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> listening to listening to other experts in the in the area talk about the fact that some of those were questions, but some of those were subjects. And um, and so I, I like Alan. I, I find it laughable uh, that the president would even suggest that the Mueller team, who hasn't leaked anything yet. Uh, would leak this. This came from his guys. And the only thing that I can think of, you know, that would be in the back of their minds as to why they would do this is to help uh, soften the blow of whatever comes out of any kind of expanded Q&A that might happen with the president. So uh, his, his core supporters can already start ramping up their argument, and I've already seen them doing it on Fox News, that this is a trap. This is just further indication of a witch hunt, and the president keeps saying no collusion. And what I what and and, and I, I I guess the thing that I would really like to to get a a definition on is what is collusion versus what is conspiracy. I mean I I think that as long as he keeps saying no collusion, I think he's trying to uh, say that nothing inappropriate happened when. 16 indictments to the contrary seems to be ignored by any any uh, any of the true Trump followers but i mean w- i mean how far of a step is it from uh, uh from collusion to um um uh something else that's illegal yeah yeah Sharma, you can you address that maybe that's a good point to bring up is what is conspiracy and what is collusion Well, it's been a while since I've taken the bar, but conspiracy is generally the act of, you know, two or more people uh, working together to plan an illegal act. So that, um, you know, again, the elements are different for the particular crime that you're conspiring to commit, but overall, that is the sort of the basic elements of conspiracy. You need to have two or more people, and they need to knowingly be you know planning a crime together and an act okay. that they know to be illegal so that's those are the elements of conspiracy collusion um i'm less familiar with but collusion seems to be uh, involving a state actor in this context at least right collusion is when you are conspiring with a state actor or another government actor to engage in some sort of illegal or unethical act. So that's, I think, the the key difference between conspiracy and collusion. Ah, okay. Alan Moore. I don't. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it, it necessarily has to be illegal. I mean, I think that a conspiracy, I think, assumes illegality. Um, collusion can be inappropriate, as you, you, one of your words. Um, but it doesn't have to be illegal. I mean, you, you could conceivably collude with the, uh, the Russians, let's say. So let's say Manafort uh, was working with the Russians um, and encouraging them to look at this and look at that and try this and try that um, and, and doing it in secret. But it, right. it, it wouldn't necessarily be illegal. 
Um, it may be inappropriate. It may be embarrassing. It may be a political disaster. And if you lie about it under oath, it, that may be the crime. But collusion, as I understand it, in and of itself doesn't have to be with regard to an illegal act. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, collusion, collusion is not a legal term, according to uh, an article in The Nation. Uh, it, it basically says that uh, it is a, a process where there's an act of engagement with a foreign entity not necessarily for illegal purposes, but to gain something of value. That's at least from one legal aspect. But just off of that, though, you know, because this also brings up the question of uh, the job security of Rod Rosenstein. It was uh, reported by NBC, our friends at NBC yesterday that certain Trump friendly Republicans in the House of Representatives have, in fact, drawn up articles of impeachment for Ron Rosenstein. Uh, Alan Ward, is, are, are we starting to see possible movement into the dismissal of, Rose, of Deputy AG Rosenstein, possibly Sessions, possibly Mueller, or all three? Not via impeachment. That's just a, a bizarre why side they, story. You got twenty guys. They would, they write down one page. They're saying, "Gee, what if if we can't convince the president to fire <laughs> Rosenstein? Let's say, what could we do? And we could we hold him in contempt because he he won't turn over uh, Department of Justice documents that that they know that we're going to leak, um, and they're angry and they want to show their loyalty. So they say, "Gee, could we impeach him? That will never happen." <laughs> That that now having said that, all those guys um, are watching with interest, with probably some nervousness, um, given this unpredictable president. What might he do? What might he do in a peak of anger? Um, I <laughs> none of us knows. It, we, we're all a little bit afraid. Um, like everybody in the White House is a little afraid. Is he going to turn on me one of these days? Um, I'm, I'm not saying that the president himself might not at some point decide that the best way, for example, to to put some limits around the Mueller investigation would be to fire Rosenstein and then move a move a person from another agency who's already been confirmed by the Senate. Um, this problem, this problematic law uh, that makes EPA Administrator Pruitt a candidate for every job in government, God knows why, um, and and bring 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 that person into the Rosenstein role, for example, and then to to put some fences around what Mueller is and is not able to do. I think that would be nuts. I think it would be uh, totally self defeating. Um, too many people know too much to try to put this genie back in the bottle, but. Who knows what what this president might do, and who knows what if he said to, let's say, Don McGahn, you need to uh, you need to go tell Rosenstein he's, that he needs to resign, um, and McGahn says, I'm not doing it, Mr. President, the way he allegedly did when we was told to get rid of of, of Mueller. Um, 
I, I don't. I think that this is. I hope there's a little. Of this is hope, and and I. But I also believe this that that the president vents. He lets off steam. It it pleases him. He's got a following that says, "Yeah, Mr. President, yeah, President, yeah." And at the end of the day, at the end but at the end of the day, he doesn't he doesn't fire Mueller. He doesn't fire Mueller. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got uh, an echo now. I don't know if you guys are hearing it. Um, Hold on. Anyhow, yeah. Alan, go ahead. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm done here. I, I just uh, I attach virtually no significance to the report that a handful of House members have put on a single sheet of paper. Um, <laughs> Uh, the outline of what would be an impeachment proceeding <laughs> against uh, uh, a presidential appointee. I don't know if there are any precedents in U.S. history. Probably there's something somewhere, but certainly not in my memory, not in modern history. It's not the way you get rid of people. Does does getting rid of Rosenstein possibly pull the president away from his Republican support in not – just the House, but the Senate as well, Admiral Ken? Um, I, I think that um, at this point, um, I, I think there's enough um, just, 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 and this is just based on gut feel from what I'm, what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. Um, there is enough animosity uh, about the idea of anybody over justice being fired that I don't think it would, it would play very well. I mean, when, when, when Gowdy, uh, I think from South Carolina, um, yep. basically says, you know, you know, just let the, let the investigation play out, uh, quit acting like a, like a guilty person. Um, and, and he's, he's, you know, he's one of the more strident people. I mean, you know, he was one of the folks that was really going after, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, over the Benghazi deal, so he's no he's no shrinking violet. Um, when when guys like him are basically starting to feel that backbone, uh, I I think the pre- uh, that's got to put the president and in and in, in, uh, in some of his more committed followers on notice that this might not be as easy of an a, a task, and it, and it may it may sell just as well as the Comey firing. Is it something I said? <laughs> I can hear you, Ken. Uh, we're we're speechless, Ken. We agree with you. Yeah, I just exactly. don't exactly. Yep. Although I would push back on that just to think that right, the president doesn't care about anyone else's opinion. If even if someone like Trey Gowdy, who very few people could dispute his conservative bona fides, even if someone like Trey Gowdy is telling him one thing, if the president doesn't want to believe it and the president wants to do something else. He'll find some vile name to call Trey Gowdy. He'll call him a rhino. He'll say all kinds of stuff about him and just say, so I'm going to do the other, like, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. And, you know, and I'm right. So I don't know how much credence that the the president, certainly his, the people in his, his staffers, but I don't know how much credence the president or his supporters out in the public really put on other conservative voices. Because the president is such a unique type of, you know, quote unquote conservative. If if the president weren't listening to other people, Mueller would have been fired months ago. 
he hates the fact that he feels boxed in, but I think he does feel boxed in. I think he's heard warnings from enough people. Um, and, and we don't, we don't see these warnings. You know, we, when, when Mitch McConnell has a private conversation with the president, it's not broadcast and neither McConnell nor the president goes out and says, wow, Mitch McConnell just said, I'm in deep doo-doo if I get rid of Mueller. That's not what those guys are going to go out and talk about. Um, But when McConnell says the president is not going to get rid of Mueller, he's not just being an optimist. He's operating on some kind of information that he has and that people close to him have and that he's had from others. Unfortunately, we can't ever be 100% sure of anything with this president. He definitely is, has the capacity to just, in a whim, in a moment, do something. But he also has a strong instinct of self-preservation. And one would assume that in the hundreds of lawsuits that he's been involved in, he would have learned <laughs> something from time to time about being careful about not getting himself into a trap from which he cannot extract himself. He learned not to pay his lawyers. Pardon me? He said he learned not to pay his lawyers. That's why, well, no, one, that's why no one wants to represent him now. Well, <laughs> they, they don't pay. A lot of contractors don't want to work, work on his projects either because they like getting paid, or they like getting paid what, what it was agreed that they were going to get paid. Um, exactly. Uh, having, you know, having said that, he's, he's, he's got a team of lawyers here and there. They're not the A team, arguably not <laughs> even the B team. And, and, uh, and that becomes challenging when you're, when you're presidency, when the, the, the potential legal exposure of people close to you, we haven't talked about Jared Kushner and his potential exposure. Um, uh, his 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 son, uh, Donald Jr., um, who after all did take that meeting, that famous meeting in the White House, and may or may not have been truthful about it. There's some stuff out there that that, how, that could, could how, trigger Alan, how, the president. How big, how, how big of a, I mean, how big of an exposure could possibly come out of uh, any sort of mis? Any any sort of just either misguided loyalty in the House or some misguided loyalty come from outside supporters? Does the it's not just the president that could get himself into trouble with this special counsel investigation, is it? Well, I mean, ultimately, it's it, it's about the president, but there's a lot of collateral damage. Uh, Flynn is going to probably get some jail time. He's had to expend enormous amount of personal resources. Um, uh, he, he's copped a plea. He's cooperating. We don't know what all will come out. Paul Manafort, who thought that going to work for the president was going to be helpful to him professionally um, and, and in his relationship with the Ukrainians and with the Russians, uh, made one of the grossest, most horrendous miscalculations uh, in, in modern history, uh, modern political history from somebody you know, who people thought was a pretty smart guy. Um, there's none of this is helpful to the president, but you know, the, the irony on this collusion stuff is that 
as I've said before, I still don't see um, clear, obvious evidence that the president himself um, was was colluding or knew about colluding or blessed it. The blessing part is interesting, um, and there's a there's a mystery there's a mystery phone call that his son made back in that White House, in that that Trump Tower meeting that that the number of which the number that was called um, it has not been made public. Presumably Mueller knows who was called. There's a lot of speculation that it was Donald Jr. talking to his father about that that meeting. And the president denied ever knowing about the meeting. So is the president gonna be at cross purposes with his son in terms of information or testimony. There are some areas of exposure here that even on, even on the potential collusion front, the, the president's problem is he was so anxious to not undercut the credibility of his election and suggest that the Russians may have somehow made the difference that he got crazy. And, and, yeah. and he's not a particular careful person in the first place. And so he started saying, we got to shut this down. Leave Before, Flynn alone. He's a good right. guy. Can we drop this? Can we move away from this? And he fired Comey over, well, but it was, you know, yeah, in part, this Russia thing, as he, as he told Lester Holt. So obstruction sure. is, is the area where he seems more exposed right. than what we know on the collusion sure. front. But Sharmila, let me, those are crimes. Let me ask you. Let me ask you along the same lines is you've seen a lot with Comey upon the release of his book. Is Comey doing himself any favors or is he hurting himself by being everywhere on the screen? I don't think he's helping his credibility. Um, I think he's hurting himself personally, but I think ultimately in terms of legal credibility, I don't think it really matters. I think that he is, you know, as a former high ranking law enforcement official, he has a certain amount of, inherent credibility and I don't think that he's done anything on this, you know, on his ubiquitous press tour to really damage that so far. Admiral, can you agree with Shamila? Yeah, I, I, I've watched, um, I guess a couple of the presentations, uh, to include the town hall and, you know, I, 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 before this, before he started this book tour, there was probably a measure of, um, Maybe the word sympathy is not the right word. Um, I was willing to, 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 to give him more of a benefit of the doubt uh, as to whether some of the criticisms leveled at him by the president were accurate or not. But uh, as I watch more and more and more, the words that the president used in, in his Lester Holt interview um, – comes come racing to my mind and, and that the, the, those two words are showboat. Um, you know, I, I, you and I, I think everybody on this call knows someone who has uh, suffered a high level, um, uh, a high level dismissal. And there is a modicum of decorum. Uh, even if the person who fired them is, is less than, um, less than humble, uh, let's say. Uh, and I, I, I guess what I, I, I kind of expected from, from, from someone who has as much going for them as does James Comey that we would have seen more. I agree with Sharmila completely 
that from a legal perspective, I don't think he's he, he's been very careful not to answer any questions that might get him in trouble. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I think I think the uh, I think the party's gone on maybe a day or two too long now. It's time to shut up. Right, right. Well, uh, before we switch, uh, before we go into the uh, final few minutes of the show, I do want to touch on one point that came up uh, this this morning, late last night. Uh, for those who do not know, the president announced that he would give an extension to the implementation of tariffs to certain uh, "quote unquote" friends of the United States. Those friends, including uh, our biggest trade partners, Mexico, Canada. Uh, and and uh, and England, the the EU. issue. EU. I'm sorry, the EU rather. Uh, the the issue now comes back is, are we in fact playing with fire when it comes to this tariffs roulette game that the president is working through, or is his little stunt effective? Alan Moore, I want to go to you. This is right up your sweet spot. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't see how the how the president w- wins on this. Although he's a master at saying, "I got some important concessions. We wouldn't have got them if if we hadn't threatened the tariffs." Um, uh, but I don't I, I don't buy that. I don't think that his bullying, his bluster, uh, is is the key here. Um, and I think what happens with the president is. Is this is another one? He said he was going to impose tariffs to because because these trade deficits we have with all these countries shows that everybody's taking advantage of us. All that did, and I've said this numerous times, is show his profound ignorance about how what international trade works and what uh, uh, deficits or surpluses with individual countries mean. But he is undeterred. Meanwhile, so he says we're going to do this. And then people start saying, well, Mr. President, here's who's going to get hurt, and here's who's going to be helped. And he starts realizing that, 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 that in America, there are a lot more companies that are going to be hurt for the higher prices they're going to have to pay for their raw materials than are going to be helped because suddenly U.S. manufacturers of steel or aluminum, which probably don't exist right now for the specialized products that we're often talking about, and then it's like, oh, okay, so how do we fix that? And then they say, well, let's keep talking. Let's postpone. And, and there will be something down the road there will, 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 that, that, that he can, can claim was a benefit that would not have occurred but for the, the, the tough talk. Um, it's a pattern we've seen again and again. And it's like the little boy who called Wolf, though, because – over time, as the president threatens this, threatens that, I'm going to cancel this, I'm going to impose that, it tends eventually, oftentimes, not always, to go away. So the, the panic that initially sets in uh, will, will not be as severe. But when something comes up that really matters, his credibility is harmed and and you, you want people to take you very seriously and literally because there are those times when that makes all the difference. Right. So, Charlotte, going off of what Alan's telling us, it sounds like the president's playing with 
Uh, he's playing a dangerous kabuki dance here, all for show, <laughs> all for drama, nothing behind it. Is is that going to get a lot of people unemployed back? I mean, to his in the president's defense, he's played the he's danced this dance before. He's you know spread his wings or his kimono or however you want to call it, and he's weathered the storm, right? He's not suffered any consequences, so he has no frame of reference to think that this time might be any different. Um, you know, is it a smart legal strategy? Absolutely not. But it seemed to have worked for him in the past. So, you know, he, he's he's coming from he's approaching this from his experience. Let, let me, let me add one word though, about, about the question of what, what harm might occur. And if you remember back when he first announced the tariffs on aluminum and steel, and then it right. followed up with the, the, the heavy duty tariffs that he was looking hard at for the Chinese, the markets, the stock market reacted negatively and went down hundreds of points it bounced back a little, then it lost ground. These are not free lunches, and and they do do um, potential. They have economic impacts. Um, it makes people nervous. Um, there were there were stock market gains in 2018 from the beginning of the year. They they there continued to be a climb. I think it was the market from January one to late February was up over 10%, 12, 15, I can't remember the numbers. That's gone now. And that's gone in part because of the fear of the impact of the president's words and the policies associated therein. It's not just due to underlying economic concerns. But Alan, Alan, when we talk about this, Alan, hold on. When we talk about this and we talk about the the loss of the gains that we saw in the first quarter of 2018, and now those are all wiped out in 20 uh, in in two 2018. You know, I keep hearing from folks on Wall Street. You know, one man's uh, economic fear is another man's correction. I mean, are are we over? Are we getting overexcited about the losses uh, here in second quarter? Uh, is this just a simple correction and we'll see an uptick there soon? Hard to know. Hard to know. All I'm telling you, all I'm pointing out is that, that the times that he has announced his plan to impose tariffs, the market had a huge immediate negative reaction and 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 the that reaction did was not recovered in subsequent days and weeks right and i think what's what's also important is that right the president makes these grand vague announcements with no details behind them so now we have a little bit of detail that some of our major trading partners are going to be excluded from this new tariff regime which i think has delayed any uh drop in the markets right now but i think when the details come out, if they ever come out, about his tariff plans for the countries that are not excluded come out, that's when I think, to Alan's point, you're going to see a potential, potentially huge economic impact, and you could see this potential volatility come back to the markets. Well, except ah, most, of okay. the, most of the countries, most of the exporters of steel and aluminum, for example, are the ones that are now being exempted. Um, <laughs> so... So at the end of the day, there, there's not going to be that much impact in that many places. 
The Chinese will see what happens there, but they're not without le- leverage and power themselves. It's all very disrupting and 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 risky business. Uh, the president just clearly, you know, he may be a genius in some of his real estate deals and and uh, used to be a genius in his branding stuff, although that's gone away. There's almost no Trump brand on anything anymore, and they're taking it off of buildings and hotels and golf courses because a lot of people are saying, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, uh, I don't uh, want to golf there. This place. Yeah. yeah. But, but, uh, uh, you know, so he, he's sort of losing the, the credibility there, but, 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 uh, it's bluster, it's bullying, but it's not cost free. Yeah, no question. Hey, uh, real quickly, I want to bring in our associate producer here in Washington, D.C., Audrey Howerton. Audrey, how are you, ma'am? I am doing well. Good. Audrey, uh, it is that time of the show, last minutes, where we talk about who won or who lost the administration Deadpool. Uh, obviously, last week we had a holdover because uh, we were uh, busy honoring and reminiscing about our good friend Congressman Al. Uh, but uh, let's go over. Did anybody win two weeks ago or over the past week? No. No. No, we actually haven't had a winner since March, believe it or not. Ah, do. So that being said, uh, I'm going to let Alan Moore – you can either hold over your pick from last time or pick somebody new. Audrey, who did Alan have before? Scott Pruitt. I Alan like Moore. Pruitt. I like my chances with Pruitt. I'm riding with Trump. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my money on Pruitt. You're gonna leave it. You're gonna let it ride on Pruitt. Very good. Yeah. Uh, Admiral Ken. Uh, Audrey, who did Admiral Ken have? John Kelly. What, who? John Kelly. And, oh, General Kelly. Okay. Yeah. Chief of Staff. Are you going to let that one ride, Admiral Ken? In, in light of the, the latest reporting, um, uh, I, I'm going to follow in Alan's uh, example and let it ride. You know. All right. Ride. There it is. Uh, Audrey, who did? Who did Sharma Achari have? Rod Rowenstein. Okay. <laughs> Sharma? Are hey, you going to let We're three for, we're three, for three. I think I have just okay. as good of a shot at, at my pick as any of those guys. So, yeah, let it <laughs> keep it okay. on Rowenstein. Uh, and uh, Sharma, who did I pick? I mean, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Audrey, who did I pick? You picked either Ivanka or Jared. <laughs> Uh, what do you mean, either? They come as a package. They come as a package team. Uh, come on. You get one, you get rid of the other. They're not, I mean, they, they're like identical twins that can't get, you know, eyesight of each other. They start getting all weird. Um, you know what? I am going to, uh, good grief. I'm going to go with Jeff Sessions. All right. Whoa. I'm going to go with the Attorney General. I think that I think that that, that time clock is getting ready to get punched. Uh, okay. So, 
Uh, we've got our picks for next week. Obviously, we will keep an eye on that. Uh, we by should the way, pick somebody for Dan. We should we should make oh, we a should Dan choice. For Dan. Okay, okay, Audrey, I'm going to let you pick for Dan. Who should Dan pick? Uh, well, for the record, he picked Sarah Huckabee Sanders last time. Okay. Do, uh, should we let him ride with that? I'll let you make that call. No, Audrey. I don't. I think we should give him. I think he would probably prefer either Car- Carson or DeVos. He's liked them in the past, too. <laughs> uh, okay. Audrey, your pick. Carson or DeVos? Uh, or Sanders. We'll go with DeVos. Well, go with I, mean, DeVos. I feel yeah. like Sanders is kind of, she's kind of had her fill. You never know. I think maybe we let it ride, see what Sarah does. Okay. You can do that. All right. We'll let it ride. I'm the only one going off off uh, off the box. We can do that. Um, oh, wait a minute. Nope. Daniel Lipner just texted me. I'm keeping Sarah Huckabee. <laughs> okay. All right. Good deal. That, that I'm glad he heard. I'm glad he got that, the way in. I'm glad he chimed in. I'm glad he chimed in. Anyway, uh, and by the way, guys, uh, I've got good news and bad news. Let's start with the bad news. Uh, the bad news is, I believe, Audrey, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the last show that you will physically be with us here in Washington. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. But the, no, but wait. Wait for it. The good news is, because Audrey does such a good job, she's going to be staying with us as our associate producer and doing it remotely from the shores of Lake Champlain in Saratoga, New York. Is that correct, Audrey? That is true. Awesome! Yay! Yay. <laughs> so means you continue to get from the cutting room floor every day at the five o'clock hour, and you'll continue to get uh, great, great headlines like a Nobel Prize peace talks and a rally over the Correspondence Center. Oh, it flows off the tongue. Uh, that being said, first of all, uh, for everybody, Audrey, thank you very much. You have been an absolute godsend. You are now absolutely part of this team for as long as you. you want to be uh cannot thank you enough for the website the content and kind of keeping this uh corral of cats herded so thank you for that <laughs> uh but she'll be on with us she'll be on with us every week so that that's a good thing but uh best wishes speedy travels travel safe audrey and obviously you'll be on next week and i still expect to see it every day at five the cutting room floor that being on behalf of Admiral Ken Carradine, uh, Alan Moore, Sharma Chari, and our associate producer, Audrey Howard, uh, and Dan Littner, Esquire. Uh, we will, I'm your host, Moderator Justice. So we will be back next week. And another piece of possible good news we all may be together next week, Press <laughs> Club. So we will find that out too. But oh, my God. Regardless, we will be. I might even come down to DC. You would come down to DC for that travel? Oh, we have to make that happen. We will make that happen then. Well, but you guys we will can just be get on a train to New York. That's true. <sighs> Why would we do that? We're in Washington. New York's boring. Uh, with that, we're going to say. <laughs> Not even going to dignify that with a response. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. By the way, check out uh, From the Cutting Room Floor every day at 5 o'clock on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. Uh, Admiral Ken's got a new article that I believe is up on, in the newsroom, uh, in our op-ed newsroom, 
which is also at www.backroompolitics.org. Uh, you can follow us on our Twitter account. Uh, that is at Backroom Politics. Also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. Or you can email or your complaint to info at backroompolitics.org. That being said, we'll see you next week, America. Have a great week. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.